the Tech Canada Leadership Standard, hosted by Tech Speaker of the Year and branding expert, Gare Maxwell. Real life stories from leaders spanning the business spectrum. Now more than ever, leaders are shifting through significant decisions under accelerated timeframes with less information and bigger consequences for their companies, for their people, and for the communities that they live in. You're about to learn of the triumphs, failures, struggles and disruptions through the first-hand account of an industry leader. Join us now for the Leadership Standard. He is President and Chief Executive Officer of the 200,000-member Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Canada's largest national business association. He's from Fergus, Ontario, a graduate of uh, the University of Western Ontario in 1971 and was elected to Canada's national parliament the very next year in 1972 at the ripe old age of 22. Now he spent 21 years in parliament serving as a cabinet minister in no fewer than seven different portfolios, including treasury board, uh, national revenue, solicitor general, external affairs and national defense. In 2018, a member of the Order of Canada and in 2020, the government of Japan awards uh, our guest, the Order of the Rising Sun Gold and Silver Star, and we say greetings to the Honorable Perrin Beatty. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Perrin, here on the Leadership Standard. Glad to be here. Th thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and uh, there's so much I know that we can dig into today, and because we love exploring the subject of leadership, let's Let's talk about right now, uh, in in the in the here and now of what it is you're facing in your role with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We know since the pandemic of 2020 has put uh, an incredible amount of pressure on business everywhere, particularly the small to medium sized sector that the Chamber of Commerce represents. So that might be a great place to just dive in and and hear your thoughts and your perspective. Sure. It, it's safe to say that none of us anticipated where we would be today. Uh, we did see signs that something something very worrisome was brewing. We saw it in China. We saw it subsequently in, in Italy. Uh, but none of us was really prepared for what was going to come ashore in, in Canada and sweep the world. And as a result, then, every single organization, whether it's business, government, uh, voluntary sector, others, and families even, have had to rethink how they operate on a day-to-day -day basis. And as a consequence, then, this process of reinvention that we've all been engaged in and re-reinvention in many instances over the course of the past year or so uh, has really tested the, the capacities for vision and the capacity to deliver, uh, certainly for business people over the past year. So what 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 are you seeing, uh, Perrin, from your perspective as president CEO? In other words, and you already know that any leader has to have his or her ear to the ground. When you put your ear to the ground for Canadian business, what are folks saying? What are they concerned about? And and where do you find hope? Well, the the first element is we are in still in the tunnel, and it's long and it's dark and it's much longer than any of us anticipated that it was going to be. The good news is that the end is in sight. Uh, we will emerge from this. The question is, how do we get there? How quickly, how do we do so safely? And then once we come out, what is this new landscape going to look like? And how do we prepare ourselves uh, for that adequately? If you're looking at where we are today, uh, the answer is that, that for so many thousands and thousands of businesses, they're suffering, particularly SMEs. 98% of the businesses in Canada are small and medium sized. And the average SME has accumulated well over a couple hundred thousand dollars in COVID-related debt. Uh, many of them have had to have had to shutter themselves and, and go to business permanently. Um, this has been incredibly traumatic, and we run the risk even that as we start to to come out and to decontrol, and government supports are pulled, that suddenly all of those bills come due, and that we could see an, yet another wave of bankruptcies affecting uh, affecting businesses. So. Uh, there's a good deal of concern out there. The most important thing is that businesses are focused on how do we keep our, our employees and our customers safe and how do we get our lives back as rapidly as possible? How can we safely decontrol 
as rapidly uh, as we can. And they're looking then for leadership from government and from others to, to set out that path. You know, Perrin, I can't help but ask, given the different perspectives you've acquired in your career, you've been at the highest level of government here in this country. You've been president of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association, so you've got your eye on international trade. Now, from your perspective uh, with the Canadian Chamber, I think business leaders everywhere would love to hear your thoughts. Anyone watching or listening, what are your thoughts on on how has the government performed through this crisis, particularly as it relates to meeting the needs of business? Um, first, you know, let's make one thing clear. Governments at all levels deserve to be cut some slack on this. None of us anticipated being faced with, with something of the scope. Uh, they literally were, were designing and building the plane as we were flying it as we, as we were going along. So they were... Uh, developing and announcing programs in the space of days that normally would have taken months to put together. And as a result, then they were constantly fine tuning programs and looking at ways to, to improve them. Uh, they didn't get many of them. They didn't get right at the outset. That's not surprising. The key was to keep, uh, to keep improving. And they were comparatively fast in terms of coming in and putting programs in place to, uh, to help it's an odd position for, for me to be in uh, as someone who has sounded the alarm on the size of government debt over the course of, uh, of uh, the last 20 years or so, and uh, who's been very wary about, about big government and about government involvement in the economy to, to be in the position I've been in the last year to say, in a crisis like this, you desperately need government. And it has to be there to ensure that you have uh, adequate support, both under families and under businesses, to make sure that that people can safely make it to the other side of the river. What what governments have done is to put the Canadian economy and Canadian society into a medically induced coma for the past fifteen months or so, and uh, as a result, then you have to provide the support system to enable to enable people and to enable uh, organizations to to be able to continue. Um, the premises that are better to wake up with a headache than not to wake up. But as we wake up, as we start to decontrol, as we start to, to go back to something more normal than what we've known in the last year and some, uh, the headache is going to be massive. Uh, a debt load that uh, the federal government estimates that by 2025, 2026 is going to be $1.4 trillion dollars. You know, I was concerned when the annual deficit was in the $20 million range. I felt that there's something wrong if the government couldn't balance the, balance the books. Um, we are going to find ourselves in a massive debt hole, and we can't cut our way out of it. We can't borrow our way out of it. We can't simply send the bills to our kids. We can't inflate our way out of it. The only way that we can deal with this successfully is by growing our way out of it. And so what we need is a, is a strategy focused on the private sector that, that enables us to, to encourage investment and growth far beyond what we had in January or February of last year. So it's not going back to where we were. We're going to have to have something that's much more successful coming out of this. And our trading competitors around the world are very focused on doing that. Um, so what, what's key at this point is what is the, what is the strategy? Where do we go from here? Uh, has the strategy been developed? Has business been an integral part of, of developing it? And if so, when will it be made public? You know, Perrin, I, I can't help but listen and hear a couple of key thoughts, phrases woven through your comments, not the least of which is A, the subject of reinvention, which, and re-reinvention, as you mentioned, but also it, it a metaphor that I, I recall using um, in the early days of the pandemic was that small to medium-sized business, given the numbers, the sheer numbers, would be like the locomotive that pulls us out of this mess eventually. Is that a view you would share and concur with? If until such time as we have SMEs up and running successfully, the Canadian economy isn't isn't healthy again. The best sign that you're going into a recession is when the when the lights start going start going out on Main Street. 
best sign you're coming back out is when the open for business signs come back out. Uh, we're not there as yet. And uh, we need to do more to be able to successfully make that, that transition. And, and that means then that um, governments need to look at what sort of continuing assistance is going to have to be in place to enable people to actually get back on their feet again. It's not like throwing a light switch that either, either you're out of business or else everything is, is the way that it was before or, or better. It's going to take time to get built back up. And that particularly is the case for, for specific sectors. Hospitality would be a case in point. Uh, transportation is another one. Uh, you know, anybody in restaurants or hotels or festivals or tourism uh, are particularly hard hit. And there are other sectors like that. Governments are going to need to take a tailored approach and say uh, specific tailored assistance needs to be available for these sectors or for these types of businesses to help them successfully get back on their feet again. But our goal is, should be very clear. It's to move away from a subsidies-based economy, which we have today, to one where both families and businesses can be self-sustaining again. And that certainly includes SMEs across Canada. You know, uh, Perrin, I can't help but think uh, beyond your Chamber of Commerce uh, responsibilities and leadership role, you learned leadership early uh, when you were elected to Parliament at the age of 22. How much of leadership and, and growth comes down to simply mindset. Uh, as I hear you talk about the need for growth, I'm also hearing there's a certain mindset required for anyone to achieve that. Very much so. And, and I, I was very fortunate to have spent 21 years in parliament. I was particularly fortunate to have gone in and as an obscure 22 year old backbencher uh, who was able to make mistakes and cut his teeth without anybody really noticing what he, was, what he was doing wrong. And I was very fortunate uh, to have had colleagues in parliament uh, who were much more experienced than I was to be able to provide mentorship and, and advice to me. Um, but what do you learn in, in politics is the need for adaptability, that circumstances change dramatically. Uh, politicians are also generalists. Um, uh, some of them may become experts in a particular field, but for the most part, you're called upon to look at everything from immigration to tax reform to, uh, to skills to infrastructure, whatever the issue is, healthcare. And uh, uh, as a result, then adaptability uh, is key. And certainly for me, in having had seven different portfolios in government, every time that you changed a portfolio, uh, you were cramming for the finals again, and uh, you were drinking from a from a fire hose for the first while, simply trying to get the information that you needed to be able to to do a proper job. So, um, you know, when I was uh, when I was revenue minister, I was not a lawyer or an accountant. Uh, when I was uh, solicitor general, I had not been a police officer. Uh, when I was defense minister, I had never been in the military. When I was health minister, I wasn't a doctor. Um, and, and this goes through all of the portfolios which I had. Um, so the, the, the critical skill is not, to, is not that you bring more knowledge than the people you're working with, but that you're able to ask the questions that need to be asked and that you're able to get the information that you need from, um, from the people who do, have the, who do have the expertise to be able to, to trust them to be able to provide a clear vision to them in terms of what you would like to achieve uh, and to be able to collaborate uh, very closely. But it also requires then on the part of the politician a, a couple of, of other skills and that's flexibility and adaptability to changing circumstances and the capacity to take a broad view. Um, when you're in the, uh, in the health department, uh, the only thing that, that looks important is what can we do to protect people from whatever the next threat is. And so the inclination is that most of your time is spent saying no, um, mm. can't do this, can't innovate here, can't do something that's fresh because there's a potential danger there. The role of the politician sitting on top of that is to take a broader view of where the public interest lies and to say, um, yes, we have to accept a certain amount of risk and we have to accept that, uh, that there are trade-offs between... Uh, strict preservation of health. It, you know, uh, during the lockdowns, uh, the transmission of the disease has gone down dramatically. 
And the argument is made, well, we should protract the lockdowns for, for that reason. So have, uh, so have uh, automotive casualties gone down <laughs> and all sorts, of, all sorts of others. But at some point, uh, you have to weigh the balance there and say, say the, the trade-off in terms of risk and reward for people being able to get back to their ordinary lives um, is in favor of your being able to reopen again in favor of your taking prudent measures. So it, often the most dangerous, um, the, the riskiest strategy that you can follow is one of no risk. That's what the Americans tried to do on the Canada-US border after 9-11. They, they said, you know, we don't know what's coming with us. We'll simply shut everything down and we'll seal off the United States. It soon became uh, uh, apparent that that wasn't sustainable either economically or socially. And that the issue of terrorism wasn't going to go away. We're gonna to have to live with killers in our midst for the rest of our lifetimes probably. So the issue then began became, well, how do we manage this? How can we control it? How can we push this down to a level where, where the risk uh, is overwhelmed by the, the advantages that we have in being able to reopen? So uh, the strategy then was, was built around that of saying, let's take our resources and target them at the areas of highest risk instead of treating everything equally. Second, uh, let's explicitly accept the fact that, uh, that there's no zero risk strategy. Uh, that there could be further incidents. Uh, third, in our communications with the public, let's be honest and open about what we know and what we don't know, and let's enlist the, the help of the public in dealing with this. And if we treat them as full partners and as adults, they will participate willingly in this. Then it was, it, it, it was how do we use intelligence? Uh, how do we, we use data to try to identify where's the next threat coming? How do we head it off before it takes place? And then finally, there's no guarantee that there won't be another incident. How do you make your system robust so that if there is another incident, you're able to bounce back from it and not simply put everything on to lockdown again? In my view, our strategy for dealing with the pandemic should have been exactly the same. Uh, we should have leveled with the Canadian public from the outset about the, um, about the nature of the threat and said, we're gonna have to live with an invisible killer in our midst for the foreseeable future. Uh, the issue for us is gonna be how do we manage that and allow people to have as much of their ordinary lives as possible. Uh, we need to, to do this together. It has to be a partnership for us to do it. We're going to get the best possible data and we're gonna apply our resources where they're most needed. So uh, in Canada, where we had the disgrace of the, uh, of the long-term care facilities, where we had devastation among the people who are most vulnerable in our society, uh, we should have been pouring resources into there to, to protect those people. We didn't. We were much too late. We spread the resources much more, much more widely. Um, so intelligence is key, targeting resources is key, and then robustness. Uh, how, do, do we, how do we ensure whether, and you'll re recall the issue of uh, ventilators, and whether or not we would have enough or whether or not our, our intensive care units and hospitals would be overwhelmed by all of this. How do you ensure that your healthcare system isn't simply overwhelmed? Exactly the same strategy, Here's what I found. but, uh, but for, a different, for a different, but just as deadly threat. Sorry, that's a long answer to a, <laughs> to a short question. Yeah, um, um, it is absolutely critical that, that the worldview that you have, the state of mind that you have in approaching these issues, uh, be one that, that allows you to be adaptable and to, uh, and, and to learn. Um, and we're the sum of all the experiences we have. You know, Perrin, one of the things uh, viewers and listeners to the Leadership Standard enjoy hearing are the personal leadership journeys that people like yourself have taken. So if we you know, take the Perrin Beatty body of work and you detach yourself and you look back to the 22-year-old who started as, as, as a member of parliament. Is there something that you wish you had known when you started the journey? Anything you can reflect back on and, and think about that you could share? <laughs> I am probably grateful for what I didn't know. Um, people often ask me, uh, 
what made you decide to stand for parliament at 21? I was a candidate at, at 21. I won the nomination then and then worked full time in the election, uh, getting elected at, at 22. And my answer when people ask me what made you run at 21 is arrogance and, and, um, and ignorance. Um, it, it, you know, I assumed that I had the knowledge that was necessary to be the best person in a constituency with 100,000 people that of all of those people, I was the best one to be able to represent their, their interests. And that's somebody who'd never had to pay a mortgage or raise a family or, or whose full-time job had, ex had, had extended for about half a year. And his intention had been to go back to university to do grad work uh, as opposed to uh, staying in the, in the workforce. Um, if I had rationally sat down at the time and, and looked at my skill sets and my knowledge base and uh, the, you know, what my obligations were, uh, I probably wouldn't have run and uh, I would have been much poorer for it as a, as a result. So in, in some ways, the, the rashness and, and presumption that somebody has at age 21 um, it may be an advantage to you that that may not be apparent at, at, at the time. And uh, I was fortunate for that. Um, you know, I was, I was planning, uh, if I hadn't been successful in the election, I was going to go back, I'd taken a year off uh, after graduating with a social sciences, BA, general, three year, pretty not terribly useful degree for the most part. Uh, I'd been planning to take a year off and then go back and do an MA and a PhD in Canadian history, uh, or and then teach in a dusty university campus, uh, or I was going to do law, or I was going to go to Ryerson and uh, take the radio and television arts course and be a journalist. I hadn't made up my mind. Instead, I ended up in Parliament. And for somebody whose who's interest was Canadian history, to be able to be there and to be part of history, to sit on the committee when Canada's uh, constitution was being, uh, was being patriated and to debate issues about the nature of, you know, of civil liberties in Canada or, or how, do we, uh, how do we prepare for pandemics or for other crises. What an incredible privilege this is and what an education it gives you. Perrin, uh, when you were in Parliament and serving in Cabinet, particularly uh, part of the Mulroney government, for example, um, if you think about our parliament in Ottawa as the equivalent to the National Hockey League or the PGA Tour or the NFL, what was your very personal welcome to the big leagues moment? Anyone coming up the ranks, you know yourself, Perrin, as that, shall we say, comeuppance story. What was your story? Oh, I, I, you're a, I just, I think everyone will be so curious to hear yours. I still remember it very well. Um, you know, there were in those days a lot of parliamentarians. So they referred to themselves that way, who had been there for many, many years and who had political parliamentary skills that that you know somebody who was wet behind the ears as uh, as I was didn't have. And I still remember um, I was a very aggressive opposition MP. Uh, I was there to change the government. Um, and saw that as my mandate and, and was very focused on doing that. One of the uh, stories that came up that everybody's forgotten about was there were uh, claims that there were CIA operatives undercover unknown to Canadians in the US, in the US Embassy. And I raised this issue in the House of Commons and on a number of instances got the government off balance on it. And somebody, uh, somebody wrote a letter to the editor of a, of a newspaper and said, you know, why is anybody surprised at this? There's a, there's a book called Who's Who in the CIA. You can look it up by, by name. Uh, why wouldn't we have, have done that? So I went to the parliamentary library, got the, uh, got the book that started going over the diplomatic lists. And sure enough, all sorts of names popped up there. So I had, aha. Uh, got so up you in had, house. Perrin, you had the smoking gun. This was the smoking gun. Right. <laughs> and uh, got, got up in the house and uh, challenged Alan McEachan, who was, if, if anybody defined parliamentarian, uh, Alan McEachan did, and uh, said, uh, you know, 
uh, there are X number of names here that, that, that correspond. Is the government, has the government satisfied itself that these people have gone on to more arcane pursuits before coming to, to Canada? McKechn reaches down on his desk. He pulls up a copy of the book. He said, if the honorable member is referring to this little red book, which is a piece of KGB disinformation that mentions every distinguished person except possibly the right honorable gentleman from Prince Albert, John Diefenbaker, uh, then uh, he should know that, uh, that this is utterly discredited. He simply dismantled me joint by joint. Uh, it was a great learning experience for me. Uh, and fortunately, I was young enough and obscure enough that it didn't end my career in, entirely at, at, at that point. Um, that was the welcome to the House of Commons moment for me. Karen, leadership is very much a journey, as you know. I'd be curious, who were your influences, your mentors, if you will, people who really helped steer you in the right direction? Well, the person who first got me involved in politics or, or who got me excited about politics was John Diefenbaker. I got involved when I was 12. I had no concept that 10 years later I'd be sitting as a member of parliament. I was just a kid who, who was invited to, uh, to get involved and help put signs up in an election campaign. Um, but, uh, but Diefenbaker was, you know, what a powerful orator he was and what a, and he had a very powerful vision for Canada as well. And he really inspired a, a generation of, of young people. Um, Joe Clark, who's 10 years older than I am, had been inspired by, by uh, Diefenbaker as well. And there were many others. Um, then uh, Robert Stanfield, whom so many Canadians don't know these days, uh, often referred to as the best prime minister that, that Canada never had, who had been premier of Nova Scotia. Uh, Stanfield exemplified to me all of the best virtues of public service. Uh, he was somebody who didn't need politics, who wasn't driven by ego, who didn't feel that, that either he or the, or the country wouldn't survive if he didn't become prime minister, but somebody who'd been successful in, uh, in business and in government and who felt that he had an obligation to service, to, to putting something back in. Uh, extraordinarily honest, never saying anything in, in private that you would have been ashamed of if he'd said it in public. This was in my formative years in politics, uh, a wonderful, you know, you learn from example, to have somebody like this as your leader was, uh, was amazing. And each one of the, um, you know, they're extraordinary figures in parliament on all sides of the house. Uh, you know, I admired, I was a strong opponent of Mr. Trudeau senior, but I admired his intellect. You know, this was a very smart man and uh, in, in many ways, extremely, extremely impressive. And he had a clear view, had a clear worldview and a sense of what it was that he wanted to achieve. It wasn't simply what's the latest poll show, but where do I want to go? You may disagree with the destination, but, but at least he had that sort of clarity. Brian Mulroney, uh, I have never seen a better manager of people than, uh, than Brian Mulroney, um, where, you know, I would be home on a, on a Saturday night watching Saturday night at the movies. The phone would ring and it's the Prime Minister of Canada on the phone saying, Brian, it's the parent is Brian. I just want you to know that Mila saw you give a speech in the house this week and thought, thought you were great. And your reaction is, well, you know, Prime Minister, you know, it's wonderful of you to call, but, but you know, for heaven's sake, it's a Saturday night. Don't you, you know, aren't you entitled to some time for yourself? An extraordinary manager of people and also uh, it was fascinating in watching uh, that government when we came into office that, enorm that initially we had a thousand different priorities and we got no traction on any of them. We just scattered all of our efforts. Mulroney learned from that. Uh, he put in Derek Burney as his chief of staff. They took all of these priorities and boiled them down to a handful. GST, uh, free trade with the United States, a handful of others. And suddenly the machinery started to, to move forward. And this was one of the most transformational governments of our lifetime. In terms of making change, this, you know, what an education for me to be able to be part of that and to, to watch that. And I could go through others as well, who uh, each of whom brought different styles of leadership and, and different approaches to, to government, but, but um, 
each of which was a was a tremendous teacher to me uh, as I was continuing to learn. Perrin, uh, I also, when I look at this photograph, uh, circa your era in Parliament and, and a G7 summit with Thatcher, Reagan, Mulroney. So outside of Canada, what would be your greatest leadership story you could tell uh, from the world stage perspective? In other words, who did you watch and admire and, and, and pick up a few uh, nuggets from? There were many. Um, you know, let, let's start with the G7 there. Um, in those days when when the leaders of the G7 came together and you had Cole and Mitterrand, Thatcher, Reagan, Mulroney, and so on coming together, there was a sense that problems were going to be solved. Today, so often when you see uh, summits taking place, there's a sense that the problems are, are bigger than the leaders. Uh, that may be unfair because the world is much more diverse and much more multipolar than it was in, in those days. So, and it's not just seven people getting together to, to you know, make these key decisions. But, but these were each in their own right uh, extraordinary leaders. And uh, there was that, that sense of common purpose they had to, to make things happen. Um, I've had the, the, the privilege, and I was just thinking about it the other day, um, you know, how, many, how many monarchs I've met um, over the, the course of, of, of a lifetime and how fortunate I am to have been able to do it. Uh, one that stands out uh, for me was the King of Thailand, uh, the, the late King of Thailand, um, who it was a reminder to me of the importance of monarchy as a force for democracy. Uh, I went to Thailand uh, as Joe Clark's representative to the Board of uh, Governors of the Asian Development Bank in 1985. It was really my first official uh, trip that I was taking on behalf of the, the new government. Um, it was, it, the meeting was being held in, uh, in Bangkok, and one of the events was, uh, was at the palace with the, with the king. And I found myself sitting with the king at his table at, uh, at dinner. The king of Thailand is a revered figure. Uh, it's believed that he's a deity in, um, in Thailand. Um, with him was, was General Prem, who was the uh, prime minister of the day. Um, there, had been a, um, there had been a coup attempt by the military uh, against the civil civilian elected government in Thailand. The king ordered the military and the political leaders to literally crawl into the room in front of TV, in front of them, and he ordered them to make democracy work. Extraordinary. Uh, you know, talk about the, the role of an, in, of an individual in terms of uh, the contribution that he made to the welfare of his whole, of his whole uh, uh, society. Um, just as an aside, uh, um, at that dinner with the king, who was an extraordinarily modest man. You know, this was a man who uh, he'd gone to school at Neuchâtel in, in uh, Switzerland. Uh, he had he played the clarinet. You could buy sheet music with the king's sheet music. Uh, he used to race cars when he was when he was younger. Uh, quite an extraordinary man. But he, he came down. The rest of us were black, dressed in black tie. He came down dressed in a suit, and he looked at us and looked at himself, and he said, uh, "I just put on what they put out for me." Um, but again, very modest about himself. Um, he said, "You know, in in Thailand, um, all military commissions are given out by the king, and you hold your commission for life." And um, I became king when my father died and I was only a lieutenant at the time. So my military rank is still just lieutenant. And I said to him, uh, your majesty, you could always demote everybody else to a sergeant or less. He turned to General Prem, who was then the prime minister and uh, was quite a dour, unsmiling person. And he said, the general wouldn't like that. Uh, extraordinary, um, extraordinary man. He took us for, took me on a tour of the palace afterward. And he pointed out the picture of a uh, portrait of his grandfather who had been the, the, the person portrayed in The King and I, which had been banned in Thailand because uh, as diminishing the, the king. 
And he said uh, he was in fact a scientist and someone who had, had died in the remote areas of the, the country when he was researching um, science. Um, but what an extraordinary privilege to have that exposure to, uh, to such an individual who had been such a force for good within his society. Perrin, I can't help but ask, from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce to the Manufacturers and Exporters Association to all those years in Cabinet and in Parliament to the King of Thailand and the G7, through all those experiences, how would you define leadership? I don't know that there's one definition of it. Uh, uh, so often you define leadership based on the circumstances that, that you face. Um, and, but, but one thing that is critical about leadership, um, we think often as history as something which is impersonal forces that simply sweeps us along. In so many instances, the course of history is changed by extraordinary leaders. Think of Churchill uh, during World War II. And it's stunning when you see the, the extent to which Britain was under siege and, and it stood alone uh, to a very great, great extent in the world. And uh, the courage that was shown and, and the inspiration that was provided. Um, and we can see many instances of that. Uh, you know, I cited the, the King of Thailand as an example. Um, I look at Brian Mulroney in a Canadian context and uh, the courage and vision that he showed in, in uh, bringing in free trade and, and the, GS, the GST. These were at potentially enormous political cost for him. But he believed that, that the, the purpose of holding the office wasn't to hold the office it was to do something with it. Now, the same with, uh, with corporate leaders whom I've seen who've reinvented their companies, who've gambled everything to, to build something that, that, that is new. Um, it is how human beings interact with the circumstances that they're faced with, often with, uh, with circumstances for which they could never have been prepared. Cite two examples, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was shot coming out of the Washington Hilton, and the grace that he showed coming out of that and the courage that he showed um, uh, inspired people. Uh, the same applied for Margaret Thatcher when she was at the party conference and the IRA bombed the conference, killing people, attempting to kill her. And the strength that she showed standing up to the IRA at a time when, when people were simply shaken um, was extraordinary and it, it, it gave her consolidated her leadership and allowed her to continue to lead. What Britain did in the Falklands War, where they had their supply lines so stretched so far and where there was every possibility that this could be an incredible disaster for them, and yet they were able to, to succeed. Um, the One of the people I admire the most uh, was Lord Carrington, Peter Carrington, who uh, went on to become Secretary General of NATO. Um, but uh, But Peter had been foreign secretary at the time in, in Britain, and he had advised the, uh, the uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher, with whom he was very close, that in his best view, that the Argentines would not occupy the Falklands. They would not attack the Falklands. And he was wrong. Over the opposition of the Prime Minister, he tendered his resignation from, from cabinet because as a person of integrity, he felt it was he was responsible for for he had to take the responsibility for what had, had taken place. How many politicians do you know who say something went desperately wrong? That's my fault. I take the responsibility for it. Good leaders are prepared to be there in the good times and the bad, and they're prepared to put themselves on the line for others. Um, all of those instances that I cite are instances for which people never could have been fully prepared, but it's the test of character and extraordinary leaders have extraordinary character. One of the things I'm sure you've noticed, Perrin, about leaders, uh, they can quickly size up people and size up situations. What do you, in your view, what's the most common reason that people in leadership roles struggle? If, if certainly, if I look at politics, it's the nature of the bubble around our around our elected leaders. Um, you know, you, you're surrounded by people carrying your bags and assisting you and telling you how great you are, and people soliciting soliciting you because it's in their interest to to be in your good graces. 
and that creates a bubble where you simply get out of touch with um, with with where ordinary people are. That's extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, the same can happen with with business leaders if they become so consumed with a you know micro atmosphere that they've created for themselves that they lose touch with their employees and their customers and and with what what's happening outside of that. So I think it's that bubble and isolation that that's the most dangerous thing. We want to take a moment, Perrin, if we could, to get up close and personal. And because there's another side of leadership that is very personal. And in your case, I want to draw attention. I thought this was most appropriate. If we could draw attention to maybe uh, your favorite artist, uh, Joni Mitchell from Saskatoon. And, and, and Joni Mitchell wrote a great song, as you know, called Both Sides Now. Um, uh, from the album Clouds. When you think of your career and how it juxtaposes from many different perspectives, what is it you can relate to most about Joni's uh, anthem around both sides now? Um, I guess the, the need to understand the complexities of life um, that, um, it, you know, so very often things look so simple to us uh, and uh, they're not. Um, that uh, we have to be able to stand back from it and have an appreciation of the totality of life. I remember when uh, when I first ran for for office, the the ignorance of somebody that age who I thought I thought every Canadian was like me, growing up in southern Ontario, and and there's a bubble uh, in southern Ontario that 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 we exist in. I had grown up there, I'd been educated there. I'd had my first job there. I was elected from a constituency from there. Um, and I just assumed that every other Canadian had the same view of the country that I had. Got elected to parliament and I discovered that people who were as, as fervently Canadian as I was, people from Alberta or from Newfoundland or from Quebec might have a very different view of the country than I had growing up in, in Southern Ontario. And I remember being quite angry that I'd been cheated, that I didn't understand my own country as a result of, uh, of uh, the bubble that, that I'd grown up in. Um, I had a, the, the privilege during the time I was in Parliament and, and since to understand the, the complexity of Canada and the diversity of it and the richness that this brings. Um, that's, you know, that's what that's what's so extraordinary about this country, uh, that we can all be Canadian in our own way. Perrin, before we wrap up, we've, we've got to ask you just a few more personal, very penetrating questions. Uh, right now, what are the books that are on your night table? Like, what are you reading right now? <laughs> I'm reading reports. I'm reading magazines. I'm reading um, articles on the internet. I am not reading books the way that, um, the way that I would like to. The last one that I read and, and loved was The uh, Splendid and the Vile by uh, Kurt Larson uh, last summer about, uh, about the Blitz and uh, Churchill and life in, in London at that time. And what an extraordinary uh, portrait of, uh, of, of courage that he, that he painted. I'd love to read more of his books. Uh, I tend to read biography when I get a chance to, uh, to do it because there's so much to learn from, from other people's lives. And uh, I'm hoping that when I get some time off this summer, I'll be able to put aside the, the focus on the immediate and to, to get some perspective from doing some reading. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? <laughs> it all depends on your perspective. Um, uh, I, I'm pretty used to me, but <laughs> others aren't. So, um, so for me, I would say not weird at all. <laughs> others might disagree. We mentioned Joni Mitchell, but your favorite movie is Patton. Can you do a line? Is there a favorite movie line from Patton as read by Perrin Beatty? Uh, I don't know that there's a favorite line from Patton, from Patton but uh, there's the a favorite scene that I have when, he, when they're trying to figure out how to get across a river uh, to the other side. And suddenly Patton comes along in a Jeep on the other side and he has gone entirely by himself. He's in hostile territory. And he says, there's a crossing down the way that, that you can use. It was uh, Patton's boldness and uh, his, 
you know, his courage that he that he showed, the the sense of of destiny that he felt in in that movie. Uh, George C. Scott just did a brilliant job of portraying him. Speaking of the movies, while we're on the subject, and you've got Brian Mulrooney calling you on Saturday Night Movie Night, who would you want to play you in your film biopic? <laughs> I've never uh, really thought of that one. Um, I don't know. Nobody, nobody specific comes to mind. I think we would all choose somebody who's much better looking and much more articulate than than we are to do that. So I'd be be glad to take Brad Pitt if uh, if he's available and would like to have the job. Um, but it might be difficult attracting him. So just curious, um, is, is there a room in your house? I know right now I, I believe we're in the dining room in in in, in, in Perrin Beatty household, but. Is there a room that resonates with you the most right now? Uh, for me, it's in in the living room, sitting in uh, the easy chair, being able to read, look out the window, and see the seasons change. And um, to me, that's a spot that's very special for me. It's uh, a place where I have a chance to pull back a bit from all of the hurly burly of the day and to set things in perspective. What's the Perrin Beatty guilty pleasure? I uh, hate to say it, but it's uh, it's culinary. It, um, I, I'm not a terribly good cook, but I enjoy cooking, and it takes your mind away from the from the day to day things that you do. We have a, a men's cooking club in in Ottawa that uh, that I belong to, and we haven't met for some time. Where we cook for our wives, we usually have an ambassador who's a member of it as well. So about four or five of us who who get together periodically, and. Um, one of them is a doctor, which, with given the skill sets there, uh, is very good to have in this group. I, I'm just curious now, begs the question, what's the Perrin Beatty signature dish? Do you have a favorite recipe? Maybe something you could share with our listeners. I don't. Uh, there, it, it varies It varies from day to day and from, from week to week. I'm somebody who's dilettante-ish about, uh, about cuisine. Um, I've been very privileged because of travel and the like to sample cuisine around the world, and I love to be able to to do that. My own skills are much more narrow and and uh, uh, pedestrian, but uh, but I enjoy the you know it's a creative outlet where you're able to to do something that's quite different from what you're doing the rest of the day, and where you have to free your mind a bit. The same the same reason I enjoy music or enjoy reading or enjoy travel. The the whole point, as you know, with with travel is we keep on saying, well, you learn so much about the world or you learn so much about others. No, the value of travel is what you learn, what you learn about yourself um, by questioning, why is it everybody else does things this way and we do things this way, things that you've never examined before. Um, that's where, where the value comes. Aaron, are you ready for the Lipton Pivo survey? This is rapid response, next question type of format. This probably is not, but probably, probably not, probably but we're, we're going to give it a it. shot. We're going to give it a shot anyway. It honors uh, the work of French journalist Bernard Pivot and James Lipton from inside the actor studio. So very quickly, Perrin Beatty, what is your favorite word? Service. What is your least favorite word? Selfish. What turns you on? Making a difference. What turns you off? Intolerance. What sound or noise do you love? Music. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, heavy machinery. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> Um, shucks, I wish I could tell you. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? There are so many. Um, I would love to be a great chef. I would love to be a musician. I'd love to be a great writer. What profession under no circumstances, Perrin, would you ever do? Uh, probably those three, given my skill sets. 
And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear our heavenly father say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You're at the right place. Deep down, parent, it's been my experience that many great leaders, people who have been on leadership journeys have a personal creed or motto that they can summarize in like less than 10 words. What's yours? It's about service, about making a difference. I've always believed that there was going to, if I was fortunate enough to, um, to live to be old and it was too late to change anything, I'd like to feel that I'd spent my time well. And before we wrap up, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked that I didn't? I think you've covered the waterfront pretty well um, there. Um, I don't know anything that you've missed that, uh, that, that, is, that is significant other than, I guess I would say, what's the greatest privilege you've had in a lifetime? And it's been the ability to serve. Um, and I've always felt that with my career, whether in Parliament or at the CBC or, or uh, at CME or, or the Canadian Chamber, uh, it's all been able to make a difference for the country in one way or another. Um, if I had a love song without sounding too hokey, I hope it would be old Canada. Perrin, before we let you go, and I'm looking at your Canadian Chamber of Commerce standard behind you. And because business matters, and we both know that, to get this economy growing again, what is the number one question business leaders need to be asking right now? Where's the plan? Uh, we need to have a, a clear plan for moving from where we are to where we need to be. We don't have that today. And we need it urgently. Well, thank you so much, Perrin, uh, for, for joining us here. And uh, we wish you well. We're, we'll be following your success and your progress with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much to Perrin Beatty, the Honourable Perrin Beatty, for joining us today. And if you want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class programs, check out the website, www.tech-canada.com. What was it that Perrin Beatty spoke of that made you stop, think, and reflect. One of my biggest takeaways was when he uh, discussed about uh, the riskiest strategy you can do right now is to actually take no risk. And, um, and, and, and so, but we're always interested and curious about, you know, your thoughts. What were your biggest takeaways? And feel free to share your thoughts directly with us. Uh, my personal email is gair, G-A-I-R at garemaxwell.com. If you enjoyed the leadership standard, feel free to share with others. Go mad. Push that like button and share with others in your online networks so that we might inspire someone else to grab hold of the clutch and go full throttle in this uh, new frontier. So on behalf of everyone behind the scenes at Tech Canada uh, and the leadership standard, thanks so much for joining us, for listening and, and being part of uh, what we're doing here. Uh, with this program.